It's good to be with you, church. My name is Halim Sa. I serve as one of the pastors and elders here at The Stone. We've been working our way through this incredible little book in the Old Testament called the Book of Jonah. And we're going to wrap up the Book of Jonah today. We're going to be looking at Jonah chapter 4. Last week, Matt showed us through Jonah chapter 4, God's heart for the city, his heart for masses of people, his heart for the masses living in this city who don't know him yet, who've yet to experience his love for them. But this week, we're going to see in Jonah chapter 4, God's heart for Jonah. God's heart for Jonah, and there through it, see God's heart for us. If you remember the narrative, God has called Jonah to go and preach God's word to Nineveh, but Jonah hated the Ninevites. He thought they were so evil. He thought they were undeserving of salvation, and so he runs away, but God keeps pursuing him. He keeps coming after him until finally Jonah repents and he obeys God. He goes to Nineveh and he preaches God's word, and then literally every man, woman, and child in the whole city of Nineveh, they repent and they're saved. The whole city is saved. It's it's literally the greatest revival ever recorded in human history. And so we saw in the last verse of chapter 3, this. Jonah chapter 3, verse 10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Now looking at this verse, Don't you think Jonah should have been a three-chapter book and not a four-chapter book? Think about all that's happened. Think about all that Jonah has done to run far away from God. Think about all that God has done to pursue Jonah. And Jonah finally repents. He finally goes to Nineveh. Think about all that Nineveh has done to repent and be saved, right? And so shouldn't this be the nice, happy wrap-up to the story? And Jonah and the Ninevites live together happily ever after. That should be the end. So why Jonah chapter 4? Why a whole chapter about how Jonah got angry again at God for saving the Ninevites and how God had to deal with Jonah again? Just seems to mess it all up. Why Jonah chapter 4? You know, Jonah chapter 4 shows us that this story is real. If it would have ended with Jonah chapter 3, that's too good to be true, at least in this world. That's not our story. We don't repent and we don't just, we're not just changed forever and, and, and done with our sin. We struggle again and we fall again and God pursues us again, right? Jonah chapter 4 shows us this story is real. What Jonah chapter 4 is showing us is that God wasn't after Jonah just for his service. God wasn't just after Jonah just for his usefulness. God was going after Jonah... Uh, because not just because he needed Jonah to do something for him. Otherwise, after Jonah finally did what God wanted, that would be the end of the story, right? What we see through Jonah chapter 4 is that when Jonah is finished with God's mission, God's just now getting started on Jonah. What we see in Jonah 4 is that God's not pursuing you because he wants something from you. He's pursuing you because he wants you. Some of you think that the only reason God's coming after you, the only reason God's been pursuing you and being so relentless is because he wants you to do something for him. Maybe because he wants something from you. No, that's not why. He's coming after you because he wants you. Because he wants you. 
What we see in Jonah 4 is that God not only wants the masses in the city, but he wants the individual named Jonah. Jonah himself is the one that God is after. God's aim is Jonah's heart. The relationship is bigger than the mission. The relationship is the mission. God wants you, not what you can do for him. He wants you. And so we're gonna be talking about God's heart for Jonah today, God's desire for Jonah's heart. And so through Jonah chapter four, we're gonna see three things about Jonah's heart. Three things, number one, we're gonna see the condition of Jonah's heart. We're gonna see the condition of Jonah's heart. And second, we're gonna see the pursuit for Jonah's heart, God's pursuit for Jonah's heart. And lastly, we're gonna see the challenge to Jonah's heart, God's challenge to Jonah's heart. The condition of Jonah's heart, the pursuit for Jonah's heart, the challenge to Jonah's heart. So first, let's look at the condition of Jonah's heart and there see the condition of our own hearts. Jonah chapter three, verse 10. And when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had that he has said he would do to them and he did not do it. Chapter four, verse one. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was angry. As we read the last verse of chapter three and the first verse of chapter four, what do you see? What do you see? What we see is the most significant issue about the condition of Jonah's heart. We see that the condition of Jonah's heart is contrary to, and it opposes the heart of God. When God saw the repentance of Nineveh, God relented from his anger. But when Jonah saw the repentance of Nineveh, he was displeased exceedingly and he was angry. Whereas God was slow to anger, relenting from his anger, Jonah was quick to anger. And I wonder if there are some of you here that struggle with anger. Maybe you have anger issues. For many years, this was one of the primary sins in my life, anger. I wonder if there are some of you here that are prone to depression. I wonder if there are some of you here that are harboring bitterness. We're going to see all these things in the heart of Jonah in chapter four, anger, bitterness, depression, deep depression to the point that he just wants to die. And from the outset, from the very first verse of chapter four, what God is showing us is that oftentimes, not every time, but oftentimes the reason why we get so angry, the reason why we get so bitter, the reason why we get so depressed is because our hearts are contrary to God's heart. We're created for God's glory, right? God's created us. God's designed our hearts to be matching with his, to be in line with his, to love what he loves, to to hate what he hates. But when our hearts are out of sync and when it doesn't match, when we don't love what God loves, when we don't hate what he hates, that's when our hearts have the most tendency to be angry. That's when our hearts have the most tendency to be bitter and depressed, why? Because it's not doing what it was designed to do. It's not fulfilling its purpose. We're not gonna get to the solutions yet. Right now we're just diagnosing. God is telling us through his word in Jonah chapter four that the condition of our hearts, even as God's children, even though you may be here saved, oftentimes our hearts, it opposes God's heart. It doesn't match up. Let's look at the text again. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this 
What I said when I was yet in my country, this is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me. For it is better for me to die than to live. What do you see in verse two? Do you see where it says, Jonah says, I knew, I knew. He says, I knew you are a gracious God. I knew you are a merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disasters. He says, God, I knew these things about you. And all those things that Jonah knew, are those true things? Yes, they're true things. In other words, Jonah didn't have a theology problem. He had a heart problem. Jonah is saying, it's not surprising to me that you did what you did because I knew you to be this way, but nevertheless, I don't like it. Nevertheless, I hate it. It makes me so angry. It makes me so bitter. It makes me so depressed. He says, oh, Lord, just take my life from me. It's better for me to die than to live. You see, Jonah didn't have a theology problem. He had a heart problem. He knew all the right things about God, but the problem was that he didn't delight in those things about God. He didn't love those things about God, otherwise he would have pursued him, otherwise he would have obeyed him. And isn't this true of us? Isn't it true of us? Why do we sin? Why do we disobey? Church, why, why do we fall into the temptation of looking at pornography? Parents in the room, what if, what if your daughter was trapped in that industry? How would you feel about that? Well, that's just the smallest glimpse into how our Heavenly Father feels towards it. And think about this. Do you look at pornography because you think it's the right thing to do? Do you look at pornography because you have a theology problem? Somehow you've just been misinformed all these years. Somehow you just come, came to believe that God likes it, that God delights in pornography. Is that why you look at pornography? When it comes to the sin of pornography or whatever other sin that you are prone to fall into, is it because you have a theology problem? No, you know God hates it. You know he's commanded you not to do it, but you do it anyways. Why? Not because you have a theology problem, but you have a heart problem. You know the right things about God. You know his heart on the matter. You know that he's commanded you not to do it, but you do it anyways. Because while you may know the right things about God, you don't always love the right things about God. You don't always love those things about God. So it's not enough for our minds to align with correct theology. Right? The Bible tells us that even the demons believe and they shudder. Even the demons have proper theology, but what's their response? They shudder. They hate it. They would have run far away from it. So it's not enough for our minds to align with correct theology. Our heart's affections have to align with his heart's affections. And that's one of the most distinguishing marks of a believer, not just having correct theology, but having correct affections. You may know all the right things, but do you love the right things? Do you delight in the things that God delighted? And here's another thing about the condition of our hearts. It can be in such opposition to God's heart. It can so hate what God is doing in our lives that it makes us just want to entirely give up and perhaps even to die. Verse three, therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. 
What makes a person want to die? What makes a person want to die? What Jonah is showing us is that even as a believer, even as God's children, we can go so off base that our emotions become so misaligned and our heart passions and desires become so contrary to God's heart. And even our correct theology can't help us to the point that we just want to quit, to the point that you just want to die. The question is, how could a man who had seen God's power the way that Jonah had come to such suicidal notions? How could a man like Jonah get there after seeing all that he saw? And have you ever asked yourself this question? Have you ever asked yourself, and how did I get here? How did I get here? It's not that I've never experienced it. It's not that I don't know him, I know him. I know him, I've experienced him, I've experienced him come after me. I've experienced his love for me. I've experienced his power demonstrated in my life. And so why all the anger? Why all the bitterness? Why all the depression? How did I get here? Sinclair Ferguson says this. It's apparently possible to be present to witness the blessing of God falling in enormous power and to long to be elsewhere, or better, to be nowhere. Indeed, it is possible to be in this condition and be a real child of God. What an enigma. And yet, it is a true reflection of the spiritual debilities that some of God's children know. Jonah wanted to give up. But God was not willing to give him up. That was in all likelihood why his misery was so very miserable. Jonah was caught between the vice of his own self-will on the one hand and the strong hand of God on the other. The more he pushed, the more God pressed. He was bound to remain miserable until either he or God let go. But he knew that God had no intention of giving up. You see, many of us think that the reason why we can get so depressed The reason why we can get so very miserable is because God is absent, because he's so far away, because he's not at work in our lives. But what God is showing us through Jonah's life is that we could come to such anger, we could come to such bitterness and depression, not because he's absent and it's far off, but because God is so present and he's so powerfully at work in your life, but you just hate what he's doing. That's why. And so if you're angry here today, if you're bitter here today and suffering depression here today, have you considered this possibility? Perhaps it's not that he's absent. That's not why you're so miserable. It's just that he won't leave you alone. He just won't let you get away with things. You keep trying to be done with God, but he refuses to be done with you. Maybe that's why you're so miserable. And in that way, you may be miserable but it's a misery of the best kind. You may be miserable, but it's a misery of the best kind because it's a misery that reminds you that God isn't done with you. 
You may be miserable, but it's a misery of the best kind because it's a misery that reminds you he will never give you up. It's a misery that will remind you he'll never surrender you. It's a misery that reminds you that you're safe no matter what your heart condition, no matter how much you hate what he's doing, no matter how far you've been trying to run away from him, it's a love that just won't let go. That's why it's the most wonderful kind of misery. And so next, what we're going to see is this never letting go love of God in pursuit for Jonah's heart. We just saw the condition of Jonah's heart. Now we're gonna see God's pursuit for Jonah's heart and there see God's pursuit for your heart. Verse four. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. This section of scripture is bookended on each side by the question, do you do well to be angry, right? Verse four, he starts out, do you do well to be angry, Jonah? And verse nine, he closes out, do you do well to be angry, Jonah? Jonah is so angry, and so God asks, do you do well to be angry? You see the heart of God as a counselor here. And Jonah is so angry, at first he doesn't even answer, right? And then you hear the heart of God as a teacher, a very creative and patient teacher as he brings the plant as he brings the worm, as he brings the scorching wind and the sun. Now look at verse six again. It says that the Lord God appointed a plant. He appointed a plant. We saw this word appointed back in chapter one, verse 17, where it said that the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And look at verse seven. It says that God appointed a worm that attacked the plant. And then in verse eight, it says that God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun to beat down on the head of Jonah. Four times in the book of Jonah, it says that God appointed. What this is showing us is that God pursues our hearts patiently. It's a process over time, one appointment after another. You could say that Jonah had four divine appointments with God. Our hearts are changed through divine appointments. God appointed a great fish, remember? And Jonah repents and he sings praises and he gives thanks to God. And we think that's that. Jonah's a changed man, right? But was he really changed? Did he really repent? Was he really changed? Yes, in a real way, he was changed. Yes, in a very real way, Jonah did repent. But then we see that same sin coming roaring back. 
his hatred for Nineveh, his racism. He thought he had been changed. He thought he was done with that sin. Only to see later that same sin coming roaring back into his life. Can you relate with that, church? No, I can. Can you relate with that? How many of you had a sin struggle in your life and you really felt like you repented? You really felt like you met with God over it. He he demonstrated such power and patience in your life. You repented. You said, God, I am done with this. For the rest of my life, I'm done. Only to see later the same sin coming roaring back into your life. Well, that's the bad news. The condition of our hearts is such that one divine appointment won't do it. As amazing as it may have been. Jonah being swallowed up by a great fish for three days and three nights. You would think that if any any one experience of God would change him, it would be that experience, right? If any one experience could change us, it would be experiencing the death and resurrection of Jesus. Just that one little experience and, and we'd be done with sin, right? But that's not how it works, is it? It didn't change them, not completely anyway. Our sins are much more deeply rooted than we think. It's like a weed, we chop off what we can see, but the roots, they still remain. That's the bad news. But the good news is that God won't give up on us. He will tirelessly and relentlessly dig and dig and dig and pursue our hearts. He did send his son, Jesus, to die on the cross for us. He did do that one amazing thing, but he's not done. He's not done. Is he done? No. Because we're not done. He's not done because we're not done. We still need to change. He's like, how many appointments do you need? You need two? You need three, four? You need a thousand? As many divine appointments as you need. That's what he'll give to pursue you, to come after you. He controls the plant growing, and he controls the plant dying. In other words, what? He controls the good. He controls the bad. He controls calamities. The plant didn't just die. He appointed a worm to kill it. You see, many of you thought you were just having a bad day. But maybe you're having a divine appointment, right? Maybe the sickness that you're going through right now, maybe it's not just the sickness. Maybe it's a divine appointment that God is using to set you free from the mirage that you have control over your life, right? That you're independent from it that you don't need him every day for your life and breath and everything. Maybe your kid struggling in school, being bullied, having social anxiety. Maybe it's a divine appointment. Maybe it's a divine appointment that God is bringing into your life to teach you to desperately pray for people. Just like you're desperately praying for your kids, this is how you desperately pray for people. Maybe it's a divine appointment to teach you that. Maybe your boyfriend or girlfriend breaking up with you. Maybe one of your best friends betraying your confidence. Maybe it's a divine appointment. Maybe it's a divine appointment that God is using to set you free from the idolatry of approval. You're desperate seeking and going after finding approval from people and not from God. Maybe your business deal falling through or your coworker sabotaging you so that you're facing all sorts of financial problems now. Maybe it's a divine appointment that God is using to set you free from the love of money and finding security in it. 
But we don't read these things as divine appointments for our good, do we? We just get angry about it. We just get bitter. We just get depressed. That's what Jonah did. After all of these divine appointments, patient, enduring divine appointments, God, Jonah says once again, ooh, God, you just make me so angry. And so he says to God once again, just kill me, God. Why do you keep messing with me, God? Just kill me. I'd just rather be dead. And God asks once again, do you do well to be angry, Jonah? And this time Jonah is so angry that he answers. Sometimes you're so angry you can't answer. Sometimes you're so angry you can't help but to answer, even though your answer is nonsense. And so Jonah answers, yes, I do well to be angry, God. Angry enough to die. What we see in this question is that God acknowledges real emotions. Sometimes parents see their kids doing the most ridiculous things, throwing temper tantrums over the most ridiculous things, you just refuse to respond. I'm not gonna respond to that, just ridiculous, right? But what we see God doing here is very kindly, gently, and patiently counseling Jonah, acknowledging his emotions. Jonah, I see that you're angry. I see you, Jonah. That's what he's saying to you. Whatever emotion you're going through, it could be nonsense. It could be ridiculous, but God is saying to you, I see you. I see you, but do you have a good reason to be angry, Jonah? God's inviting Jonah to think, to reason. He's saying, come now, let us reason together. I'm just mad because I'm mad, God. Well, that's not good enough, Jonah. Not just do you have a reason, but do you have a good reason? And he asks us the same question. When he sees us in our anger, bitterness, depression, he comes to us kindly and he asks, do you do well? to be angry. I see that you're angry. I see you, but do you do well to be angry? God is demonstrating some unbelievable patience here, some unbelievable level of kindness. But what does Jonah do? Jonah says, just kill me, God. If I was God, I would have killed him. (laughs) If you were God, what would you have done? At this point, kill him. Okay, dead. (laughs) Parents in the room, have you ever mustered up all the kindness, all the patience, all the gentleness that you could ever muster up as a human being when your kid is just being the most disobedient, ungrateful little punk, right? Totally expecting, man, I am absolutely justified to bust out a can right now. But surely this kid is going to be so struck by my grace. Surely this kid is going to be so amazingly moved by my grace and patient response that they're going to say, oh, mother, oh, father, how immense your patience, how divine your kindness. You have turned me, mind, body, and soul from the depths of the pit of hell that is my own disobedience. Our son, Ben, he's four years old now. One of the things that we regularly do to try to teach him when he's disobeying is we say, Ben, who's in charge? And he says, not me. And and we say, who did God put in charge of you? And he says, mama and appa, and it's real cute, and it works lots of times, but this one time, literally, it was like the 10th time he was disobeying about something. I don't even remember what it was. And we were so justified, just bring down the hammer on him, you know? But Angela, in her amazing patience, amazing kindness, for the 10th time sits down with this kid. And she says, Ben, who's in charge? Who did God put in charge over you to love you? And he just looks at her with the angriest of eyes, and he says, 
I am. I'm in charge. You're not in charge. You're me. And this is where Jonah is right now. Unbelievable patience, unbelievable kind. Jonah, I see that you're angry. Do you do well to be angry, Jonah? Yes, God, I have reason to be angry. I'm angry enough to die, right? This is often the place we get to, even though God is patiently and kindly pursuing our hearts. What we have to realize is that the only thing keeping Jonah from oblivion at this point was the patience of God. It's the only reason. And I want you to know that there's some of you here, the only thing keeping you from absolute oblivion is the patience of God. After all that God has done to pursue you, over and over and over and over, after all that God has done to show his kindness to you and his love for you and your response to him, I want you to know For some of you here, the only thing keeping you from God just taking you out and just being done with you is his patience. The very thing that he's so angry about, God's patience and forgiveness, the very thing that he's angry enough to die about is the very thing that's sustaining him and keeping him alive. And so we saw the condition of Jonah's heart. We saw the pursuit for Jonah's heart. And finally, we're going to see God's challenge to Jonah's heart, his challenge. Verse 10. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? God says, Jonah, you pity the plant. The word pity here is a very strong word. It means compassion. It means grieving. The challenge to Jonah's heart simply is this. You love the plant. You had compassion on the plant. You're grieving over what happened to the plant. So should I not pity Nineveh, that great city with 120,000 people and also much cattle? He's saying, Jonah, don't you see? You care for a plant, plant that you neither planted nor watered nor grew. It was here yesterday and he died overnight. You have compassion and you grieve over a plant. But even animals are more important than plants. Amen? These animals can give us bacon. (laughs) All vegetables can do is give us Brussels sprouts. Brussels sprouts are only good when it's mixed with bacon. (laughs) And God is saying, how much more valuable is 120,000 people? 120,000 people who bear my image, who have created for my own glory. God is saying once again, Jonah, your priorities are all mixed up. Your heart doesn't line up with mine. He's saying, Jonah, you're all upset about a plant. You're so concerned about a plant, but I'm concerned about people. This was a devastating critique on Jonah's heart condition. But it wasn't just a critique. It was a challenge. It was a loving challenge. It was a challenge for Jonah to see the condition of his own heart in contrast to the heart of God and be radically changed by it. It raises an issue no less disturbing about our own hearts. 
Could the same be said of us? Could the same be said of us? Do we care more about the contents of our own little gardens, the things in our own little lives, rather than caring about the things that God cares for? What God is saying to Jonah and what he's saying to all of us is, look look at what you weep over. What makes you so upset? Look at what you're so concerned about. And look at what I weep over. He's saying, look, look at what you love. Look at what you're going after day after day after day. Look at what you're pursuing. And look at what I love. And look at what I'm going after day after day after day. He's saying, you're all worked up about a plant, but I got people over here that I'm going to blow up and strike down in 40 days if they don't repent. And you're over here crying about your plant. But we're all Jonah, aren't we? How many of us are burdened by a family that doesn't know Jesus. I mean, like truly burdened over a family that doesn't know Jesus. How many of us are grieved over the city, the masses of whom who don't know Jesus, and if they were to die today, they would spend an eternity in hell. But we get all worked up when our car breaks down, when our AC goes out. There's masses who don't know Jesus, if they were to die today, they would spend an eternity in hell, but we get all worked up and upset about AC going out because they're sweating in the car. We're all mixed up. Jonah is saying, kill all the people, God, all 120,000 of them. Just make Jonah comfortable. A lot of us are like that. A lot of us are like, as long as God is doing stuff for me, I have time for him. As long as the plant is over my head, I'll praise you, God. As long as we have our house taken care of, our car works, our family is healthy, as long as we have those things, I'll thank you, God. But when it comes to prioritizing the things that matter to God, we run away. When God says, give me some of your time, I want to spend time with you. Spend time with me in my word and through prayer. What do we say? God, you saw what kind of day I had yesterday. I need to get my sleep. When God says, bring your tithes, bring your offerings, we say, well, God, look at all these bills. Don't you want me to pay all these bills? After I pay everything, after I have spent everything I need to spend on, then I'll, if there's anything left there, but I'll give it to you. God says, share the gospel at your workplace. Well, God, after I've built my career, once I've, once I've established myself and have some influence there, then I'll start sharing the gospel. I'll do it then, God, just wait a little bit. But God is saying, seek ye first the kingdom of God. Seek first his kingdom. We all have this bent to put me first. And we have our priorities and values all mixed up. And so how can we be taught? How can we be corrected? How can God tune our hearts to sing his praise? Sometimes by God, by making the plant to grow up. Sometimes by God making the plant to grow up, by giving us the very thing that we're really going after, the thing that we're really placing our hopes in, something that's covering our heads to provide comfort, happiness, and a sense of security, by God giving us the very thing that we've been going after, but then taking it away. That's what God has to do with us sometimes. That's the only thing That's the only way that he can get our attention sometimes. Give us something that we're really enjoying and then overnight removing it. Why? 
because he's cruel, because he's just messing with us? No, so that we would learn that he is a sovereign God who will stop at nothing to capture your heart as long as you're pursuing these other things. He's the one who's created your heart. As long as you're pursuing all these other things, going after all these other things, he's saying you're gonna be angry. You're gonna be bitter. You're gonna be depressed. As long as your heart doesn't line up with mine, you won't truly be happy. Not truly. That's why he does it. The story ends rather abruptly. In fact, it doesn't really have an ending. He says in the last verse, should I not have mercy on the 120,000 people and all the animals, and then it's over. The story is left unfinished. We don't really know how Jonah responded. But in fact, that is the whole point of the ending. This ending forces us, you and me, to contemplate our own personal response. It carries no conclusion because it summons us to write the final paragraph, our own conclusion, because you and I were Jonah. The point of the ending is, Jonah, what you gonna do? That's the point of the ending. Jonah, what are you gonna do? The point of the ending is, church, what are we gonna do? God is saying, here's my heart. This is what my heart loves. This is what my heart is going after. This is what my heart is all about. And so what are you gonna do? What are you gonna do? When God says, should I not pity that great city? God is asking, should I be like you or should you be like me? God is asking, should my mercy look more like yours or your mercy look more like mine? When God is asking, should I not pity that great city? He's asking, should I join you in your mission or will you join me in my mission, Jonah? God is asking, should I be living for your desires and your glory or will you live for my desires and my glory? God is asking, should I submit to your plans and your will or will you submit to my plans and my will? What's it going to be, Jonah? And so what's it going to be, church? What's it going to be? Write your own conclusion. Write your own final paragraph. What's it going to be? Let's pray together. Father, we are debtors. We're debtors to your grace. Father, what heart you have. What heart you have towards us. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? If you were willing to give us your son, Father, what will you withhold from us? How great is your love for us, Lord? How kind your pursuit for us, Lord? How gentle and how unrelenting your pursuit for our hearts. And yet even now, we're prone to ignore. Yet even now, we're prone to turn our backs and walk away. Lord, will you show us the condition of our hearts? You say your word is like a mirror. It shows us what it looks like. Will you show us the condition of our hearts? All the ways that we're prone to walk away. All the ways that we are prone to pursue the things of this world. Show us, Lord. 
and at the same time show us who we are. We're your children. We're your sons and daughters, that you've purchased us and adopted us to be your kids forever, and that you refuse to let us go, Lord. Show us your pursuit for us. Show us your unrelenting pursuit. And Lord, let us be changed by it. Over and over and over and over and over again, Lord, will you keep coming after us? Just don't be done with us, Lord. We keep walking away. We keep walking away, Lord. Just keep coming after us, God. That's our only hope. Here's our hearts, Lord. Will you change it and graft it and prune it to match up with your heart until finally we love the things that you love. Until finally we praise the things that you delight in. Until finally we start relentlessly going after the things that you're going after. We were created for it. We were designed for it. Let us find our eternal, lasting fulfillment and satisfaction in being like you, our daddy, our father. We ask you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.